It's Thursday, June 25th, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. I'm Amy Guth. On this episode of the podcast, the Trump administration is cutting off funding for 13 COVID test sites, including two federally supported screening spots in Illinois. We'll talk more about that and other stories coming up today on the podcast. But first, this word from our sponsor. Your health and well-being are top of mind right now, and that includes your financial security. Wintrust Mortgage can help. They provide refinance solutions so you can take advantage of low rates to reduce payments. And they have the sophisticated technology to let you go through the process conveniently from home. Uncertainty can add stress to an already tense time. Rely on Wintrust Mortgage. Visit wintrustmortgage.com slash refi. Wintrust Mortgage is a division of Barrington Bank and Trust Company, N.A., and MLS number 449042, equal housing lender. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com slash SBL. Earlier today, I spoke with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, in a live stream video conversation, which you can rewatch on either the Facebook or LinkedIn page for Crane's Chicago business. And you can catch it every Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. Anyway, here's audio from that conversation earlier today, only slightly edited for the podcast format. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Crane's Daily Gist live here with Dennis Rodkin. It's time for our weekly conversation about all things residential real estate. Hello, Dennis. Welcome back. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So, gosh, we again, we have so many things to talk about this week. I want to start with a, a story that you wrote recently about how home sales plunged the most in 12 years. Talk to me about that. Well, we knew this was going to happen, right? This was the May data, and as you and I have discussed, uh, so this is sales that closed in May. And in March and April, while the, or while the shutdown was underway, a lot of the sales that closed were properties that people had put under contract before the shutdowns. So in May, we really got to the point where it was homes that were bought during the crisis, and it had been running at about 57% of, of last year. And so then we got the confirmation. Essentially, we knew sales were going to be pretty low in May. And now, uh, thanks to Illinois Realtors monthly data, we know how low. Uh, It was a drop of over 40% from a year before. What I'm going to be watching is going down the line. You know, we've talked about how there has been a resurgence of contracts. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see by the end of the year, by the end of 2020, are we down from 2019 or will we be even with 2019 or above? How big a hit was this hit? If you had to guess kind of where that's trending now, what would your, I know I realize I'm asking you to speculate, yeah. but what well, would the end of the year look like in your mind? I would only be guessing, but given the fact that there are enormous numbers of properties going under contract now, that my phone is ringing off the hook, that every real estate agent I talk to says they haven't slept in days. I would bet that we catch back up. Um, I, I said, I think I said on here that we're getting in the summer, the spring that might've happened. I think what we're getting is spring and summer both at once. So right now I would say we're likely to end the, the year up. 
But I don't want anybody to hold me to that because we really don't know what's ahead. And you know people will. They're like, you said on the gist that it was going to be different. Okay, a story I cannot, the minute I saw this, I couldn't wait to talk to you about it. And it's this historic building that is reopening as apartments in the West Loop. This is really interesting to me. Tell me about this. It is. And I think it's buildings that are familiar to anybody who has gone up and down Ashland at the west edge of the West Loop. It counts as three or five buildings, depending on what you think of attached buildings. But everything you see on your screen here, built between 1907 and 1928, was first the West Side Y, then the Duncan Y, named for a donor. That was until the mid-70s. And then it became the Salvation Army. So for more than a century, from 1907 till about 2015. This was dorm-style housing and other services for primarily for low-income people, for people when it was the why it was often you've moved into the city from farmland or a small town and you're finding your way around the city, and then you get into permanent housing. So Salvation Army moved out, sold it, and moved out in 2015. And an apartment development firm that does a lot of rehab Um, Cedar Street Companies uses the brand Flats. They bought it and they rehabbed this right back into housing, which is sort of cool. It's been housing since 1907 and it will now continue to be. And it's been really wonderfully rehabbed. You can see the buildings just look brand new, though, of course, they have historical facades. And inside the interiors, which I wasn't able to tour because we're still in mostly in shutdown mode, but I saw photos Um, They're one-bedroom studio and one-bedroom apartments, scraped brick, some some natural brick, all new otherwise. Um, They kept one of the two gymnasiums from the Y, and it's a gym for you to use if you're a renter. The other one became apartments, and they also kept the pool and rehabbed it. So it's, it's, it's a nice win. Ward Miller from Preservation Chicago said that this is really a nice win for the west side, the near west side of Chicago which has lost so much over the years, 50 years ago when there were riots and uh, in the 50s when the Eisenhower was built, when the United Center was built, so much has been scraped off of the west side of its historical architecture. It's nice to have these here and intact and not have some new, big, swollen piece of architecture put up in their place. That's right. And we've talked about Flats before, that company, because they've, they took the synagogue in Uptown and made yeah. little studios. They've, they take these buildings with really interesting history and make them into new, very modern, very fancy looking apartments. Yeah, mostly more affordable than, than what's available in the neighborhood. This is So the West Loop is becoming quite expensive and these will come in under that in the $1,100 range for a studio. They're small, but there's also this concept at these flats buildings and at others that you live outside your four walls. You use the social spaces like the lobby, you use the gym, those kinds of things. But yeah, they have, so they redid the Agudas Akim Synagogue, enormous space. I could not imagine how they were going to do it, but they made it work. They redid the Bush Temple of Music on Chicago Avenue. Again, enormous space, and they turned that into, into condos. Lawrence House up on Lawrence, an old hotel, and several others. They've they've sort of made it their mission to bring back these old buildings as contemporary housing. And what did you describe? You said, I'd rather have that than, how'd you say it? (laughs) Like a... Some big swollen... Well, I mean, in the West Loop, we do have not too far from this these buildings. 
There are some very large buildings by Sterling Bay. Sterling Bay is meeting a need by building these big new structures, Mm -hmm. but it's nice to have something that reminds us of what used to be there as well. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, all those historic preservation projects are always so interesting. All right, shifting a bit, I want to talk about Chicago's two top-selling real estate agents. This kind of sounded, the lead of this reminded me of like it was almost going to be a joke, like a Remax agent and an at properties agent walk into a bar. But nonetheless, they take very different strategies, but both have, have really set them apart. Tell me about them. Yeah, it is a little bit of an odd couple story. Maybe we should do the theme song, but... Uh, the man, Steve Canico, in the uh, western suburbs is a discount broker, essentially. I mean, that, that that sounds like a pejorative, but he's a very aggressive guy and he sells uh, several hundred houses a year. He just got into it a few years ago um, with the idea that working in volume is a really good plan and it has done well. He's the 10th highest selling real estate agent in America, according to the report from Real Trends that we got last week. And then the woman in the photo is Jenna Radney, very different approach. She sells on the North Shore, primarily sells very high-end properties. Recently, that very opulent Winnetka mansion that we talked about, she represented both the buyer and the seller. She sold Governor Rauner's house in Winnetka. And she's very much, she describes herself as a partner with the seller. She helps you stage your house, which many agents do, but she really sort of, she helps you get it to the point that another multi-million dollar buyer is going to want it. Um, she brings in her contractors. She really, one of the things she described is that when the photographer comes to take photos of your property, she's not just saying, oh yeah, come on in, go over there and take pictures. She's like behind the lens, behind the camera, uh, the person's shoulder saying, that's the picture we need. Um, so she she's a very high touch kind of a person for um, these high end North Shore clients. And, and she sold the uh, highest volume, the highest dollar sales. Um, so between them, you know, we've got the two different types, two different routes to success. What does that mean for them? I mean, I assume that means their phones start ringing off the hook, but kind of in the long haul, what does that mean for realtors to have recognition like this? You know, I think any business breeds more business or any success breeds more success in this case being, well, first of all, I guess I would say it probably does more for the man, Steve, than it does for Jenna, because Jenna has sort of this niche in primarily Winnetka, but the North Shore, and she's known. And if I sell my multi-million dollar mansion through her and she you know, does all the confidentiality things and that sort of thing that we super rich people want, then I'm going to hand her off to you when you go to sell your uh, multi-million dollar property. So it, it may do a little less for her, but for him, it's really sort of a, a confirmation that this strategy he's had, he's only been in residential, in home sales for about four years. He was managing big rental portfolios before that. It sort of says, this is the guy. If you're in the Western suburbs, if you're in that sort of middle part of the market, not up at the high end, this is a guy who can help you move it. I like how in that scenario, you were talking like we were in that multi-million dollar sales pool. <laughs> not so much. I'll sell my multi-million dollar mansion first, Amy, and then you can go later. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's that's great. <laughs> All right. um, shifting again, I want to talk about this really interesting penthouse. Milton Schwartz, who was a, a noted mid-century architect, his widow is selling their 21st floor condo. This is a fascinating looking place. I mean, the whole thing is interesting with all this walnut wood throughout the thing, but the bathroom, you know me, Dennis, so you know I was oh, yeah. all in on looking at that bathroom. I, the 
those bathrooms with the, so he built this in 1955 and he built this penthouse specifically for them. And she has lived there ever since. I don't think she lives there now. It's unfurnished when it came on the market. So I assume she has moved to another address, but the bathrooms have, there's one with a pink sink and tub. There's one with a green sink and there's one with a yellow sink. I mean, and, and look at the wallpaper. I'm I mean, all in the mirrored vanity. It's really cool. So Milton Schwartz is this very interesting guy. He's 29 years old when he designs this. He had, I'm pretty sure he had designed some other more conventional buildings on the same block. And then he he's uh, the architect, he's the developer, and he's the builder. And according to an old article from Lee Bay, the architecture writer, he designed this to be round. And this is about 10 years before Marina City which is round, he can't get financing. And again, he's the guy, he's not just the dreamer, not just the architect, but the builder. So he has to make it rectilinear, but he makes it this wonderful stack of pancakes. Everybody has these walls of glass. And then there are these three foot concrete overhangs, which provide some protection from solar, but also give the building this wonderful ribbed look going all the way up, which is a look he uses later on the Dunes Hotel in Las Vegas. He also built buildings, not necessarily with the ribs, on Sheridan Road in Edgewater, on North Avenue, uh, the Constellation right off the park. And he built something that was called the Executive House Hotel on, on Wacker. Now it's a Royal Sinesta Hotel in this great, really mid-century style. And he becomes, he, he was quite prominent. He, he got accolades for this building from French architecture magazines, as well as American and this penthouse on the 21st floor is about two thirds of that floor. He, his wife told me, the woman who's selling this one told me eight years ago when another unit was being sold, they were gonna get two thirds of the top floor and her parents were gonna get the other third, one third of the top floor. So he designed those to be the nicest units in the building, but then her parents didn't move in. So it was sold to just a, another person. They held on to that one for a very long time. Those owners held on to that one but she was still in this building. I was. I spoke to her about eight years ago, as I said, and she said it's as contemporary as it ever was. It's filled with light. It's filled with air. Um, she was still really fond of the building he built and the home he built for themselves 60 years later. And now, a, a little while later, she has it on the market. It's got built-ins that he designed. Um, I mean, if you're a fan of mid-century architecture and a fan of this architect, it would be a great place to be because... This is where he lived when he was designing things like the Dunes Hotel. It's really beautiful. I mean, this outdoor space that you have featured in the article, it's really gorgeous. But I'm really, it's another one of those structures that we normally see in a standalone house built on a lot with a lot of wooded area around it where you're really bringing the outside in. In this case, it's a view of the lake that's gorgeous to the point that it almost has like a nautical feel in it when you're looking at those wooden walls. It feels like you're on a ship almost. You're right. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. And you are actually, it's funny you would say that because eight years ago when I wrote about a different condo, we referred to it as floating above the city, partly because I I shot video with his wife who talked about how that was sort of this attitude is that you're sort of drifting over the trees that, yeah, I guess you're right. Those walnut finishes sort of make it feel like a yacht. And, you know, it's just, it's a really nice space. It's got these walls of glass all around. Um, I think it must be very hard for her to let go after 65 years, but, but it's time. I'm sure it's very hard. It's really striking that he did this at 29. I mean, what a testament to his talent there. 
Yeah, it's sort of a break. So again, I, I, I'm pretty sure these more conventional buildings on the same street or on the same block, I should say, because this is where Oakdale crosses Commonwealth. And this sits, anybody who has sort of walked across Commonwealth sees that this sort of sits right at the mouth of the street, sort of towering over you. And lining that block are a couple of conventional buildings. And I don't mean to diss them by saying they're conventional. They're just not the breakout this is. And he's, you know, he's 29 years old. He designs. So picture this as a round building that's going to be a stack of pancakes um, and he can't get financing. So he makes it rectilinear and he builds this. And here we are 65 years later saying, hey, somebody could design. We have new buildings that have come up in the last several years that look pretty similar to this. You can go to Lakeshore East and there is a building on Wacker Drive. I believe it's called Coast that looks a lot like this designed half a century later. It'll be interesting to see how this one goes and and who ends up buying it and what they do with it. We've talked many times about how that style right now does not stay on the market for long. People kind of pounce. So Yeah, and I would assume this would be a fan. Yeah, a I'm a style, if not a fan of Milton Schwartz. That's right. And if they're not a fan, go you know going in, they will be a fan once they buy it for sure. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay, I want to talk about this mega mansion in Naperville because where is the line between mega mansion and you just built a city? Because this place is humongous. <laughs> Tell me about this. This is huge. Huge. Seventeen thousand square feet on Perkins Court in Naperville. They bought three acres. They built this in uh, about 2008. They listed it for sale in 2015. It's got so much. It's When you look at the listing, they're in the basement. There's a place to play pool and a place to watch movies and a sports area and that sort of thing. And outside, there's there are all these different sort of patio spaces. I don't really know how a house like this gets built unless I have a dream list and you have a dream list. And we say, well, we'll build all of it, you know. I've always wanted a room to special room just to store my socks in. And so we build that as well. Um, But it was an era, you know, this was 2008. There are a lot of buildings, houses built at this size, and they are proving difficult to sell. That that one in Winnetka we talked about last week or the week before was very difficult to sell. It's enormous. There have been a few others. Michael Jordan's house is enormous. This one took five years and three days to sell. It started out at over... 8 million, I think it was 8.75 million, and it sold for about 4 million less than that. Even so, it's the highest price in Naperville since 2008. There was one that sold for more in 2008. You know, this was a style. This was, this was something we were doing in those early years of this, I should say, in the, the previous decade, before 2010. People were building these giant homes, and they are proving difficult to sell. Well, there's only so many people that need six bedrooms, 10 bathrooms, uh, seven fireplaces and garage space for nine cars. That feel like that's a small group of people that need that. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, I could, I'd love to have all those fireplaces, but I would probably use one and think, oh, shoot, what am I going to do with the other six? Because I like sitting in this at this one. That's you right. Know? You'd have your like favorite fireplace and just use yeah, it to build. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, we could have separate fires. You could be in a fire <laughs> in front of a fireplace four rooms away from me and we never have to talk. You see, that's how I feel. You know, you were talking about like the dream list of houses and that's how this gets built. This is somebody who probably had like no interest in compromising. Like, we're not going to fight about this. You're going to get whatever you want in the house and I'm going to get whatever. We may not even ever see each other, but we're going to build this house. It seems like that's how something like this comes to be. I think it's probably true. I think it's, I, I think you do sit down and think, well, what is everything you've always wanted? And, you know, 
that's great that some people have the money to do that. I have I have no problem with people having the money to do that. I think that unfortunately, when it becomes such a personal place, every when when you spend the money making every room look like the room you've dreamed of, then is a buyer going to be interested because they've got the same amount of money, yeah, and, that's right. and that becomes a problem. Yeah. Well, I'm still aspiring to one fireplace, so I'll work on those multiple fireplaces. You know, last week we talked about the home of Marcus Limonis from The Prophet. It was set to lose some money. This house is in Lake Forest. Well, now you know more. So what is what is it that you know? Yeah. Um, so what I reported at the time was that he put the property on the market at what would be a loss of a million and a half, and it went under contract. So we knew he would lose at least a million and a half. Now we know because the properties closed two days ago that he lost $1.9 million on this sale. He paid about six and a half million for what was two properties. This one that you see and the one next door, put them together as one big estate, paid about six and a half and sold them for about 4.6. So he lost a million nine on the sale of these properties that he had bought in 2013. You knew that that was going to happen. You didn't know the exact number. All right. Well, I would ask you what's coming up next week, but I think you're you're headed off on some vacation. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a working vacation. It's okay. a real estate story. I have an, a house that I need to get ready for sale. So we may be talking about that when I get back. All right. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always enjoy talking with you. Thanks to our sponsor, Wintrust, for making all this possible. And thanks to Frank Sennett and Sarah Zimmerman, producing from the virtual control room. We will see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Again, that was audio from the live stream video interview earlier today with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can catch that every Thursday at 11 a.m. Central on either the Facebook or LinkedIn page for Crane's Chicago Business. Coming up, Democrats tell delegates to stay home from the Milwaukee Convention, news that's sure to prove disappointing to hotel owners in Rosemont and downtown Chicago, where large numbers of delegates had already booked rooms. We'll dig deeper into that story and others right after this. For a daily roundup of stories about how the coronavirus outbreak is impacting business and the economy, sign up for our free newsletter at chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update. All one word. The paywall has been dropped for all coronavirus stories at chicagobusiness.com, but we do encourage you to consider subscribing to support our journalism. And if you receive cranes in print at the office and are missing it while working from home, you can always access the electronic edition anytime at chicagobusiness.com com slash digital edition. Again, that's chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update for the free newsletter and chicagobusiness.com slash digital edition. So you don't miss a thing from the print edition while you're working from home. The federal government is cutting off funding to 13 COVID-19 testing sites in five states, including Illinois, arguing their operating model has become inefficient. The sites had been supported by FEMA and HHS since mid-March, and the agencies formulated an agreement in May to end funding for the sites at the end of June. HHS officials said the 13 sites represent a small fraction of the total test sites the federal government is currently funding. The Illinois Department of Public Health said in a statement, quote, Illinois did request an extension for continued federal support at the two Illinois community-based testing sites the federal government was funding. But unfortunately, the request was denied. Continuing, the state of Illinois is committed to increasing testing and will continue to support these sites. The HHS Assistant Secretary for Health and the official heading up the Trump administration's COVID-19 diagnostic testing effort said on a call with reporters the agencies have worked with governors to ensure the sites can transition smoothly and also described pushback, especially pushback from lawmakers representing areas where cases are 
currently surging as a, quote, absolute misconstruence of the facts, but rather said the administration is moving to increase the number of COVID-19 tests being performed, especially on vulnerable populations. He went on to say that HHS is currently paying retail pharmacies a flat fee to perform COVID-19 tests at over 600 locations, and that 93% of the country's federally qualified community health centers, which are funded by the Health Resource and Services Administration, are performing COVID-19 tests from about 13,000 locations. But despite HHS efforts to convince people that funds are not ending, some lawmakers don't quite see it that way. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said in a tweet that cases are spiking, the administration has $14 billion for testing and tracing it hasn't spent, but quote, President Trump thinks the right move is to pull federal support for testing out of hotspot areas. Find more detail on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. The Democratic National Convention told state delegates to stay home from the gathering in Milwaukee this summer as the party announced it's significantly scaling back its nominating convention due to the pandemic. Yesterday, the party's convention planning committee told delegates that they should plan to do their official convention business remotely. Joe Biden, the party's nominee, will still officially accept the nomination in Milwaukee, but he just won't be joined by thousands of delegates who usually pack a convention hall for the event. It wasn't clear how many party officials and members of Congress and other supporters would still attend the four days of programming. However, all this will impact hotel owners in Rosemont, as well as in downtown Chicago, where large numbers of delegates had booked rooms. Overall, Democrats have taken a vastly different approach from President Donald Trump and Republicans, who moved the majority of their convention from Charlotte to Jacksonville, Florida. That's after Trump told officials in North Carolina that he would not follow social distancing requirements. Despite cases rising in Florida, Trump is planning a three-day campaign event in Jacksonville after minimal party business in Charlotte just a few days before. Tom Perez, the chair of the DNC, said in a statement, quote, unlike this president, Joe Biden and Democrats are committed to protecting the health and safety of the American people. He continued, I couldn't be prouder of the way our team has organized and mobilized to get out the vote and ensure a successful convention anchored in Wisconsin. And I'm grateful for the extraordinary leadership of our partners in the city of Milwaukee. The convention will still include four nights of programming from August 17th through 20th with both live broadcasts and curated videos from Milwaukee and other cities and landmarks across the country. The Cubs are counting on fans returning to Wrigley in a limited way this year, but City Hall and the White Sox are not quite sharing the optimism just yet. Despite the continued threat of COVID-19 in the league, and as teams have closed facilities in Florida and Arizona after positive tests for both Phillies and Astros players, Cubs president of business operations Crane Kenny said on 670 The Score today that he sees fans in seats this season. First saying that he's been optimistic about this for a while, he said, we're fortunate to have some of the best medical professionals in our city helping us both from Advocate and Northwestern, and I'll give credit to the city and the city's health department as well. Going on to say, and there was always a path to bring fans back into Wrigley, obviously a much smaller group than would normally attend games. He continued, we know our fans, if safe and if it can be done with the right precautions, would love to come back to the ballpark, so we do see that happening this year. Mayor Lightfoot's office reiterated a statement she made earlier this week that city officials are in ongoing talks with Chicago's major sports teams 
teams and that they continue to work to ensure that any return to the regular playing season is done so in a manner that aligns with the latest local public health guidance. But even if there are no fans at Wrigley, Kenny does expect rooftop spectators, saying even now with the mayor's phasing of the city's reopening, we would be allowed to open the rooftops either July 23rd or July 24th when the season is scheduled to kick off. Adding, we're looking at Manifest to find out how we can responsibly socially distance up to 20% or in our case, around 8,000 fans. White Sox spokesperson Scott Reifert said it's too early to make any calls about fans returning to guaranteed rate. He noted that the Sox have also been in touch with both the governor and the mayor's office, but said any speculation about hosting fans at this point would be just that, speculation. He added, the factors determining whether fans can attend sporting events at some point this summer or later this year are far beyond our control at this point. Continuing, it's just too soon to start speculating or working on scenarios given the challenges immediately ahead of us in returning to play. Macy's will cut about 3,900 corporate and management jobs to slash costs in an effort to write out the long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the retail sector. The move, announced earlier today, is expected to save the company $365 million this fiscal year, then about $630 million a year going forward. The job cuts are in addition to the staff reductions taking place inside stores, along the Macy's supply chain, and in customer support roles. The new round of layoffs added to fears that many of the measures taken to temporarily temporarily furlough employees in the early stages of the pandemic are becoming permanent. And the layoff news comes just two weeks after the department store chain gave investors a reason to be hopeful by announcing it had reopened 450 stores in some capacity and expected to end the second quarter with a, quote, clean inventory position. However, share prices have sunk 24 percent since then, as customers in some markets continue to avoid large indoor retail spaces in favor of online ordering, local businesses, or on not spending money on non-essentials at all. Meanwhile, the number of Americans seeking unemployment benefits was higher than forecast for a second straight week, adding to signs that the recovery is cooling amid an uptick in coronavirus cases. Initial jobless claims in regular state programs fell to 1.48 million last week from an upwardly revised 1.54 million in the previous week. That according to Labor Department data earlier today. A group of property owners has sued to overturn Governor J.B. Pritzker's order temporarily banning residential evictions amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In an action filed in Will County Circuit Court, members of the Illinois Property Owners Association, which mostly reps suburban and downstate landlords, say that the order, quote, essentially ties the hands of housing providers to enforce our lease agreements. The lawsuit contends, as well-intentioned as provisions of the order may be, they've had an unlawful and disproportionate impact on landlords, including plaintiffs, to the point of jeopardizing their businesses and livelihoods. Also stating that protecting economically needy citizens is sound and proper policy, but compelled subsidization by landlords is an improper and unconstitutional method of solving that problem. Pritzker initially banned evictions early this spring and has extended the ban with new orders, the most recent of which runs through July, in which he notes that many tenants can't pay rent because they've lost their jobs. Pritzker has also suggested that the current order will be the last, serving as what he called a transition to a new program starting August 1st, at which time the state would offer $150 million in grants of up to $5,000 to tenants who need help paying their landlords. A group that represents city landlords, the Chicago Apartment Association, is in support of the lawsuit, saying in a statement they agree that property owners deserve the same access to the judicial system as others in Illinois. Continuing, landlords should be showing grace to those who've lost their jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic, continuing to offer extended grace 
grace periods and payment plans, but judges are capable of separating the cases of those who are struggling from those who are willfully taking advantage of the circumstances. The statement continues, the governors of New York, California, and several other states have made this exact distinction in their own executive orders, keeping housing courts open for other non-COVID cases. Until next week, that's all for Crane's Daily Gist. Special thanks to producer Haima Black, as well as to today's guest, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts, and find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories most on your mind. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next week.